Welcome back aboard the Maritime History Podcast, where today we have episode 26, Sailing Advice from Hesiod, the Farmer Poet. A bit of a lighthearted title, I guess, and it will make more sense by the end of the episode, I assure you. A small recap to kick us off today, and then we'll be right into the material. Hopefully you've been following along over the course of our last few Season 2 episodes, the ones where we've witnessed the rise of the Phoenicians, their expansion west throughout the Mediterranean, and then most recently the founding of Carthage, the city that will grow to occupy a headlining role later on in classical history. The Phoenicians rose to prominence in the period after the Bronze Age collapse, their colonization push largely occurred around 900 BCE and over the following several centuries, but as we saw, they reconnected the early Greek city-states with the greater trade occurring in the eastern Mediterranean into the central Mediterranean as well. They plugged into other regional trade networks as their colonization forged ahead. Over those last handful of episodes, I hope we've assembled a solid image of the Phoenicians then, but it's now time to turn to another headliner of the ancient world, the Greeks. Historian Will Durant opened his volume about the Greeks' history with a remark from Plato. Taken from Plato's work The Phaedo, Plato spoke for and of his countrymen, when he said that, quote, like frogs around a pond, we have settled down upon the shores of this sea. If you've ever heard of the Greeks, and that should cover every earthling that's listening to this episode, I hope anyway, but if you're one of those people, if not, then I should point out that the sea that Plato had in mind was the Mediterranean Sea, the great facilitator of Greek colonization and trade. We all know the stories from Greece's golden age, the oft-examined conflicts with Persia, the Peloponnesian War as well. We will definitely get to these in good time, although I don't know that I can cover them any better than others have done before me. That's not the issue before us today, though. Today, we are going to turn to focus on how Plato's metaphorical frogs managed to get themselves spread around the pond. Or, in other words, we're going to now focus on the involvement of the archaic Greek cities with the maritime trade and colonization that was burgeoning in the Mediterranean world around the 9th, 8th, and 7th centuries BCE. Other smaller groups will pop in and out of our discussion as well, as you may well imagine, but our main focus is going to be on the growth of archaic Greece and how their colonization set the stage for the more well-known stories of the later classical Greek period. All of that is the target that we are aiming at here at least, so let's now go ahead and see just how close we can get to the mark. An opening note here, just to set the parameters within which I'll be working for this discussion, I personally don't think it makes too much sense to try and undertake a very granular examination of Greek colonization. Such discussions have been better had elsewhere already, and I'll share one such place with you at the end of our talk today, actually. 
Now, I think that a minutial view of Greek colonization would hinder our maritime history focus just a bit, because much of the evidence for Greek dispersion is gleaned from archaeological work that has compiled a large catalog of pottery finds, other similar pieces of data that make up the whole of the theories as they currently stand. This work is, of course, very important. It's helped historians figure out the details of Greek colonization much better than had ever been done before. But at the end of the day, those types of discussions don't tell us too much about the maritime history aspects of things. Rather than look at the specifics, the chronology, and the reasoning behind it, I think we could derive more benefit from getting into somewhat of a more theoretical discussion. Today, then, we are going to talk about why the Greeks began to colonize, what Greek writers can tell us about the time and conditions, also the million-dollar question for us, how exactly they went about colonizing, the ships they used, where they were sailing, the conditions, and how further Greek mythology can give us some windows into this discussion. Some of these final matters, such as mythology, conditions, and others like this may spill over into some of our future episodes in this talk, but will at least lay a very good basis for Greek colonization today. Hopefully that gives you a good idea of how I'm going to try to approach it, and hopefully where we'll both go together. So, now to get to it. I'll start with a passage from Braudel, who is a historian that I have found myself returning to more frequently as these Iron Age episodes have progressed. He just has a knack for painting vivid mental pictures of how the cultural scene must have appeared, so this quote will give us a very good intro to the topic. In his book Memory and the Mediterranean, he writes, quote, Until the 8th century BC, we may imagine Greece as a somewhat backward region such as Thrace or Epirus, were even in the classical period, with isolated villages, places of refuge where a still tribal way of life survived, and a few overlords who possessed land, underlings, rights, and in some cases religious privileges. It was something like Arcadia, still in a time warp even in the age of Pausanias, or like Ithaca under Odysseus, reigned over by farmer kings who faced unruly challengers who were also farmers, while the mass of country people looked on in silence. There were no towns in those days, of course. When the Mycenaean culture collapsed, the old urban superstructure had disappeared almost everywhere. Now back to my words. By and large, Braudel's picture here is an accurate picture of Greece during what we generally call the Greek Dark Ages. By the 8th century BCE, as we've alluded to a few times now, the Phoenicians had begun to connect some of the more fortunate Greek cities with trade once again. Perhaps you'll remember the connection that we drew between the Eubians and the Phoenicians back in episode 23, I think it was. Chronology, or at least a coherent one, which is the most useful type of chronology, but chronology is a recurring problem for any historical framing of the first few centuries of the Iron Age. 
I've tried to assemble a somewhat understandable one for the Phoenicians, but when it comes to Greek colonization, things remain difficult. Despite the archaeological record, it's very hard to synthesize an internal Greek chronology with that of the Phoenicians or any of the other players at this same time. Many of the dates attached to one site are dependent on a whole chain of dates attached to other sites. Thus, one change or wrong date can affect the entire chain. So to save us all the frustration and confusion, I'll stick to generalities except for when dates are more clear-cut or based on concrete proofs. Generally, it seems that Euboea and a handful of other early bloomers in Greece began establishing colonies at some point after 900 BCE, in the 9th century then. Phoenician merchants had been in and out of the cities on the Greek island of Euboea, but it seems that not long thereafter, the cities there had regained enough strength to make some ventures of their own back east. The colony that we now call Almina seems to have been a Euboean trading post in the Levant. It's among the oldest Greek colonies found so far. It is logical, as Spock would no doubt affirm, for the Greeks to have first pushed east as they began to shrug off the chains of their Dark Age slumber. The Mycenaeans had certainly had contact with the east so such traditions likely remained at some level within the early Greek mind. But the Phoenicians had also reintroduced the East into the early Greek centers, so the connection was forged first one way, and then the other, a double tie that is no doubt stronger. It's possible that this colony, Almina, was integral to helping strengthen early Greece's ties with the East, a connection that was itself integral to the rise of the Greek cities. The Phoenician alphabet was famously one of the main drivers of Greek cultural development. It led to the written language in Greece, and was then dispersed from there. Thus, art, language, culture, all these were infused into the early Greek centers thanks to the catalyzing influence of the Phoenician centers of trade. We will get into some other contributors besides Braudel in just a moment, I promise, but on this point, I just love the analogy that he makes. As he says, the Euboean colony at Almina served as a good example of the colony model for the Greeks, just as it seems that the Phoenicians tried to model their colonies on the geographical layout of Tyre. The Greek model was much more theoretical than based on a physical geography, it's true, and Braudel points out that the Greeks tended to follow the Almina model in this way. The Mediterranean was bordered by countries, cities, and settlements too numerous to catalogue, and with this wide variety of locales came a wide variance in development level. Some places were developed to a high degree Others remained in the Bronze Age almost, lagging behind the technological and cultural developments of the East. Trade sought to connect these many locations in a vast grid, a network of trade, regardless of whether the thing being traded were goods, services, 
finished or raw materials, even pure ideas and tools like an alphabet or something much more cerebral than physical goods. Just as in an electrical network, trade, or current, will only flow when it passes between points of comparatively high and low voltage. To follow the analogy then, Almina was a high point in the network, and when connected to a relatively low point, being Euboea and the neighboring Greek islands, the wealth of ideas, goods, etc., to be found in the Levant and even further east, these all flowed from the high voltage point to the low voltage point. The Greeks simply took these things, incorporated them into the local scene in Greece, and in time, Greece became the high voltage point, looking to pass their current on to lower voltage points yet further west. Now obviously this is a simplified way to view things. Once the current began circulating around the grid, it would always be moving, trade that is, in our analogy here. The high voltage points, or the exporting parties in play in the network, well, they wouldn't have engaged in the flow of trade if they hadn't stood to gain in some way. Gain was certainly the motivating factor for some colonizers. For others, the motivation stood more along the lines of them seeking after better opportunity on a personal level. Where many Phoenician colonies were established at the behest of a strong mother city, who kept her eye on exploitation of natural resources more than anything, many Greek colonizers were just looking for a place with more food and land than was available to them back in Greece. They weren't looking to export any of their high culture. Nothing along these lines. The reasons for the land and food supply issues in Greece are a tad bit tangential to maritime history, but they were a main cause of the Greek push onto the Mediterranean during this period. And somewhat conveniently for us, one Greek writer can help shed light on a few different topics, all in this vein. The Greek writer here I'm talking about isn't Homer, either. We will certainly get to him in due time. Rather, I now will turn to the works of Hesiod. He was a Greek poet who lived and wrote somewhere between 750 and 700 BCE. Dating is a bit rough again. But, the dates are close enough to the start of the period of Greek colonization that we can pretty confidently turn to the works of Hesiod to give us some contemporary insight into the climate that surrounded the push to colonize, the causes behind the push, as well as a few other items that he throws in there. Onward to Hesiod, then. And before we get too far in, I should mention that I will only cover the maritime points here, and that Doug Metzger on the Literature and History podcast devotes two entire episodes to Hesiod, one to the Theogony and one to Works and Days. So check those out for a more complete picture of the poet and the ideas within his famous works as a whole. To briefly place our maritime points in context, Hesiod was writing at a time not too long after the Greeks first began to colonize. And this is apparent from his works, that the process was still well underway. 
the colonization process really became a part of Greek culture, so I don't know that it ever even stopped completely. Anyway, Hesiod wrote at the same relative time that Homer did, or at least the same time when the works attributed to Homer began to materialize into a written form. We will get to those as well, as I've said, but Hesiod wasn't focused so much on the epic tales rooted in the Mycenaean origins of the Greek people. No, he focused more on the day-to-day -day life of a typical Greek farmer. Hesiod himself seems to have been a full-time farmer, part-time poet, which is actually a comfort to someone like myself and my fellow podcasters with full-time careers. Although it might be wishful thinking to hope that people will be listening to our podcasts over 2,000 years from now. Hesiod wrote about what he knew then, farming, the rhythms of the seasons in the Greek land of Boeotia, his role in the work, but he also focused on the mythical past of Greece, too. His work then is remembered both for its mythological focus and for its focus on the more mundane, which is an interesting combination, to be sure. The personal approach he took to his writings are among some of the oldest that we have on record. He writes from a first-person point of view, rather than as an omniscient narrator like Homer. Hesiod's poem, Works and Days, is framed as a missive to his brother Perses, a man who was lazy, spoiled, possibly even corrupt. As a whole, the poem is Hesiod's advice to his bum of a brother. But throughout the poem, we get a wide array of stories, myths, and other points from Hesiod that reveal a lot about his personal history. But for our purposes, a lot about the situation in Greece as their colonization kicked into high gear. Almost three quarters of the way through the poem, after Hesiod concludes a passage where he shares his tips for cultivating grapes, he then shares a bit of his personal history. Apparently, Hesiod's family had migrated from their home city of Chime, an Aeolian city on the coast of Asia Minor, but a Greek city nonetheless. They had left because of the poverty that gripped the city, their hope being that greater opportunity lay to the west. The economic circumstances are the main driver for Greek colonization, according to Hesiod, although he apparently wasn't too thrilled with where his family had ended up settling either. Listen to this passage, where Hesiod describes these items, along with a few lines about sailing and such. He wrote, quote, If desire for uncomfortable seafaring sees you, when the Pleiades plunge into the misty sea to escape Orion's rude strength, then truly gales of all kinds rage. Then keep ships no longer on the sparkling sea, but bethink you to till the land as I bid you. Haul up your ship upon the land and pack it closely with stones all round, to keep off the power of the winds which blow damply, and draw out the bilge plug, so that the rain of heaven may not rot it. Put away all the tackle and fittings in your house, and stow the wings of the seagoing ship neatly, and hang up the well-shaped rudder over the smoke. You yourself wait until the season for sailing has come, and then haul your swift ship down to the sea, and stow a convenient cargo in it, 
so that you may bring home profit, even as your father and mine, foolish Perseus, used to sail on shipboard because he lacked sufficient livelihood. And one day he came to this very place, crossing over a great stretch of sea. He left Aeolian Kime and fled, not from riches and substance, but from wretched poverty which Zeus lays upon men, and he settled near Helicon, in a miserable hamlet, Ascra, which is bad in winter, sultry in summer, and good at no time. But you, Perses, remember all works in their season, but sailing especially. Admire a small ship, but put your freight in a large one. For the greater the lading, the greater will be your piled gain, if only the winds will keep back their harmful gales. After complaining about where his father brought the family, calling it good at no time, Hesiod then admits that he's no sailor, that he's never sailed the open sea in his life, and that he has no desire to do so. I can't really blame him. Farmers never really have been known to desire a life at sea, not even Greek ones. But farmers everywhere have also been subjected to situations where they had no choice but to seek greener pastures. And it seems that this was the situation in Greece. The lands encircling the Aegean, particularly the many islands of Greece and the Cyclades, they aren't known for being unusually fertile lands. Instead, they're known as being the opposite, islands covered in stony ground where knotty tree roots leach what resources there are. This didn't present a huge problem during the years when Greece was recovering from the Bronze Age collapse. The land was poor, sure, but the population numbers could still get by without too many problems. The problems began to rear their ugly heads once the population finally started to increase during the early 10th century BCE. This was the situation in Greece, the situation that forced Hesiod's family to find new lands, so one with which he would have been intimately familiar. Hesiod the farmer poet had one more piece of advice to throw at this situation, and although he was admittedly no sailor, he wasn't a half-bad poet. He propounds an early form of an aphorism that would be recognized by most people today. Let's see if you can pick up on it here. Hesiod's advice to his bum of a brother was, quote, But I bid you consider all these things in your heart as I say. Do not put all your goods in hollow ships. Leave the greater part behind, and put the lesser part on board. For it is a bad business to meet with disaster among the waves of the sea, as it is bad if you put too great a load on your wagon and break the axle, and your goods are spoiled. To me, this sounds just a little bit like don't put all your eggs in one basket. Advice that would be more befitting coming from a farmer, but I like the maritime imagery, so no harm in this one for me. On a serious note, though, this advice is a perfect picture of the greater situation with many Greek city-states that were pushing out onto the ocean to try their luck at colonizing, seeking to escape problems just like this one. 
An increasing population with a steady, non-increasing food supply is a bad enough problem. But then add to this equation the socioeconomic system that had grown up in early archaic Greece. The arable land had become quite concentrated in the hands of a small group of landowners, and a large peasant population was thus forced to work the land as tenant farmers who could only keep a small portion of their crop at season's end. This sounds somewhat reminiscent of medieval feudalism, but a medieval scholar I am not, so I'm not going to venture down that rabbit trail or hole, however deep it may be. Anyhow, one difference, at least, was that the Greek peasants had a way out, the route of escape being a sense of adventure and the ship wherewith to undertake that adventure. This is what Hesiod's father had done, it seems, and although Hesiod wasn't too happy with their ultimate place of residence, I think even he would admit that it was probably better than remaining trapped in the shoes of a subservient pauper, forced to work the land for the benefit of another. Herodotus said that Hellas and poverty are foster sisters. But despite whatever familial connections the early Hellenes may have felt, poverty pushed them west. Hesiod's father is an example, and we can say that as Mount Helicon, where he settled, was west in relation to the city where he came from, Non-Greek lands were west in relation to Boeotia. Thus, the Greeks began their colonization of foreign lands. They pushed east as well, unlike the Phoenicians. And we'll get to talk about the Black Sea colonies soon. Today, though, we will stick to the earliest colonies west of Greece. The first Greek colonies that have been identified at this point were further west than many had initially assumed. Rather than working their way out from home slowly, the earliest Greek colonists seem to have established themselves on the island of Ischia, at a settlement known as Pithecusa. This island lies off the Bay of Naples on Italy's western coast. So for the early Greeks, it's actually quite a distant sail west. We did look at this place just a little bit back in episode 23. We said that the Greek settlers from Euboea had arrived there and worked alongside the Phoenicians, surprisingly, and this cooperation seems to have happened more regularly at the earliest stages of Greek arrival on the island. One thing that's remarkable about the earliest Greek colony on Pithecusa is the diversity of artifacts discovered. Diversity in terms of the number of places where the artifacts would have originated. Many items of pottery came from numerous Greek city-states who were known for different styles of decoration. An amphora from Italy was found, which brings the early Etruscans into the mix. Items from cultures of the Levant were also present, including, but not limited to, the Phoenicians, and this is again more evidence of the Near East's role in Mediterranean colonization and Greek expansion. Beyond that, though, even Egyptian goods, scarabs, make an appearance in the Greek settlements on Pithecusa. The island was not unique in this diversity, but it is unique in another way. 
It is the site of the oldest Greek inscription found outside Greece. Part of the reason that historians view this island as the site of the earliest colony. The transference of the written word from the Phoenicians to the Greeks, with modification in between, of course, but that transference isn't our focus. It's an engrossing topic, and one of interest for me, and I'm sure that the importance of writing to cultural development is covered elsewhere. But in terms of our current topic, it's enough to say that the Greek adoption of writing played a large role in their expansion and ultimate rise. That example of the oldest writing outside Greece comes from a drinking cup that is now known as Nestor's Cup, because of the inscription which alludes to Nestor and Aphrodite. The similarities between this archaeological find and a reference that Homer makes to a drinking vessel that sounds almost identical in the Iliad, well, these similarities are quite remarkable. It has led some historians to claim that Homer hailed from the region of Euboea, or at least that the written version of the Iliad had its roots in that region. Anyway, Homer, the Iliad, and all of that talk are items that we covered back in our look at the Mycenaeans. I'll just say here another point that Paine makes in his maritime history. This is that the Iliad and Odyssey combine anachronistic survivals from the more prosperous Mycenaean age with details of daily life that are reflective of the reality of Homer's 8th century audience. I don't think it makes too much sense to get sucked into the beast that is the Iliad again, at least not right now. Many other podcasts and books treat the work marvelously. Take the Literature and History podcast again. We'll get snippets as we later look at the ill will that develops between the Greeks and the Phoenicians, and we'll spend some time to look at the Odyssey since we haven't done so yet. But beyond that, let's go ahead and move forward today and take a look at the other artifact from Pithecusa that I almost just sped on past. This one is important though, so I'm glad that I didn't. It's a crotter, or a vase, that was manufactured on the island of Ischia, possibly at the settlement site of Pithecusa, where this vase was discovered in a shattered pile. After piecing it back together, the hole revealed a marvelous scene that depicted a shipwreck rather than a ship at sail. So this depiction is actually pretty unique as far as ancient maritime depictions go. They tend to opt towards showing positive depictions of ships that weren't yet wrecked. But hey, there's always one or two that go against the grain. And it seems to be the Greeks that really started depicting shipwrecks in conjunction with sailing ships. One side of this vase shows a ship that is capsized. There isn't anything particularly remarkable about the ship itself. There aren't any rowers depicted, neither oars nor a mast, so detailed conclusion regarding this ship isn't really proper. The sea life and the men in the water are probably more remarkable here. There are two men in the water underneath the capsized vessel. They seem to be struggling to swim, while the fish swim freely around them. On the other side of the vase, though, is something reminiscent of the Book of Jonah from the Old Testament. 
a comparatively large fish, has the head of one floundering sailor in its mouth. Although this man's ultimate fate is left to the imagination, I guess. I'll post a picture of the vase and the shipwreck depiction, and I did just want to warn you, although I highly doubt that it would throw any of you off, you're a very astute listening audience, but this vase does contain swastika decorations, which is a pretty common artistic motif in Greco-Roman artistry, so don't let any of the modern-day connotations take you aback. Anyway, as we now move on from Pithecusa, let's put the earliest Greek colony in a little broader context. Euboea, with its main cities being Chalcis and Eritrea, Euboea was the main leader in the first wave of Greek colonization. The early colonizers pushed as far west as they were able, and many of the earliest Greek colonies lie along the sea road that would have connected Pithecusa back with the Greek mother cities in Euboea. The colonizers worked their way back toward home, apparently, founding successive colonies at places like the island of Capri, Pandateria, Pontia, and then around 740 BCE, the city of Cumae. These earliest colonies were the first foothold in Magna Graecia, or Great Greece, and they would set the stage for the conflicts and stories that would play out in the region for centuries to come. The Greeks will soon clash with the Phoenicians, despite their early appearances of cooperation, and although it'll be an episode or two until we look closely at Sicily, and the main area of conflict for these trading powers, right now I do want to draw a distinction between Phoenician colonies and Greek colonies before we get too deep into the weeds. In our look at Phoenician colonies, it was a recurring point that Phoenician mother cities were almost always clearly in control of the colony sites, that the trade flow from the western colonies was the goal of setting them up in the first place, and that such trade was largely controlled by agents of the king entire. The Greek colonies, though, were not mainly settled for the same purposes or in the same manner. Given that much of the colonization or movement of peoples in Greece was spurred by issues of poverty, scarcity of land, and other similar, more socioeconomic problems, the Greek colonies were oftentimes originally set up by landowners, who could afford to equip ships for a journey. But the trade that grew out of colony sites didn't long remain under any centralized control. There are many reasons for the Greek colonies remaining more independent, so many that we could dwell here for longer than is necessary, much longer. My favorite summation comes from the posthumous publication of Aubrey de Selincourt's famous work, The World of Herodotus. He described Greece as being fragmented politically because it was fragmented geographically. He said it was comprised of islands in the sea and islands on dry land. The mountainous terrain, the poor soil for farming, the water in between the real islands, it all conspired to keep the Greek city-states separated even as many of them began to push west at the same general time. 
over the ensuing decades, as the colonies began to become more independent themselves, this only further heightened this division of city-state allegiances. In short then, the emergence of the polis, the geography of Greece, the ideas of independent governance, these all fostered a divide between various Greek regions and city-states, a divide that's often overlooked in modern discussions of Greek history. The early city-states especially were fiercely independent and highly competitive, traits that were easily transferred to the colonies that gradually sprang up. And despite the underlying common myths that were taken west by the Greek colonists, most of the colony sites began to quickly form independent identities, such that they weren't beholden to the mother city in the same way that the Phoenician colonies were beholden to Tyre. I feel like I've repeated myself at least once in this rant about colonization and city allegiances, so enough said on this topic. So far today, we've set the stage by seeing the earliest Greek settlement, and then briefly mentioning that other colonies began to fill in the gap between Pithecusa and the Greek homeland. We also got some advice from Hesiod, and saw his thoughts about why colonization started in the first place. We will look at the Black Sea colonies, and then at Sicily and the gradual escalation of competition for trade and colony in the central Mediterranean. Those in the next two or three episodes, I think. But as we wrap up today, I wanted to spend a few minutes on an overview of the Greek ship depictions from this early period of Greek history. Between the 10th century and the 7th century BCE, so before Greece reached its classical age, the artistic style of prevalence was the geometric style. We can call this pre-classical period in Greek art the geometric period while the more broad term is to call it the archaic period of Greek civilization. Too much technicality, I think, but that's what it is. We've looked at the expansion of Greek culture, but the down-to-earth question for us is, how did they undertake this expansion? They were later known for their maritime abilities, but what type of ships did they use in the archaic period? And what knowledge can we glean from the geometric style depictions of ships on Greek pottery and other things like that? Let's go ahead and try to tackle these questions before we conclude today. The overwhelming majority of ship depictions from this period come from the remnants of crotters, a type of vase-like pottery that was used for various things in ancient Greece. Some crotters were used for funerary purposes, and the first one that we'll talk about here may have been used as a grave marker. We surmise this because of the pedestal bottom portion, with the wider main portion of the crotter that bears the actual art sitting on top of the bottom pedestal. This particular one is thought to have been made in Attica, the region wherein lies Athens, and most of the pedestaled crotters of this type came from this region during the years between 800 BCE and around 725, roughly. The funerary purpose for this particular vessel isn't evident because it was found next to a grave, though. This one is apparent more from the imagery contained on the vessel. Two ships are depicted, 
the reason that we're talking about it here naturally. But this crater places a central scene in the topmost place, the place of importance. This scene depicts a prothesis, which is the laying out of a deceased person as part of the funeral rites. Then, in a ring encircling the crater beneath this central prothesis, is the scene of our focus, a depiction of two ships, along with soldiers who are locked in conflict. Some informed interpretation is necessary to try and discern what the Attic artist was intending to depict, so we'll do our best here on the back of an article written by an art history professor who had access to this crater at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. First, the two ships. Given the context of a battle and the fact that each ship has a pointed ram on the prow, we can pretty safely assume that these were both warships. The depictions are quite similar, actually, apart from some minute details. They both have the forward ram, a small raised front portion between the stem and the deck, but then the main hull of each is depicted as a relatively thin central spine. Protruding up from the hull are numerous vertical slats, reaching up to what appears to be a deck. The supposition here is that, like in the Mycenaean galley depictions, these vertical slats were intended to depict the spots where the rowing oars would have protruded out of the ship and down into the water. Technically, then, we could call these vertical dividers thole pins, which is the nautical term for a wooden pin or a pair of pins, or even a stirrup-shaped holder that would be set upright in the gunnels of a rowing boat to serve as a fulcrum when you were rowing. And it just occurred to me that I would do well to start collating all the nautical terms that we've run across so far uh, into a central list of some type on the website. So I'll try to work that in too where I have time here in the future, and I'll let you know as that progresses. There are a few other glossaries or nautical dictionaries online that I'm sure would be much more fleshed out than anything I could cobble together. So if you're looking for one of those, just ask the omnipotent Google if a term that we use on the podcast here is bypassed too quickly by me. And I do apologize if I skip over any terms that may be unfamiliar. To finish off describing these ships, though, they each have a small raised platform back near the stern, where a curved stern piece rises up above and provides a perch for a bird on each ship. A single steering oar seems to jut down below the hull on each ship as well. Finally, these ships have a sail, or at least the depiction of the sail has survived for one ship, but not the other. The sail is indicated by a cross-hatched pattern that's hung from a yard, which is itself attached to a central mast. The sail and yard are then anchored to the deck by sail yard braces to support the whole setup. The ships both contain archers and swordsmen on their decks, engaged in combat by sword on one ship's deck, while on the other ship a man stands on the prow ram, but is being aimed at by an archer who stands further back on the ship's deck. This one actually has been surmised to possibly be a ship that is beached, and that the archer was a man on the ship to begin with, uh, 
and that the man standing on the prow with the sword is an enemy combatant from the land who jumps up on the prow as the ship is resting on the beach. It's really hard to know in just looking at these depictions if that's true or if that's just imagination. It is possible, though, and that is how these ships would have been beached back in the day. Also on this ship that may or may not be beached, underneath the sail depiction, there is a woman who appears to be crouching beneath the sail. It's been suggested that she's actually shackled to the mast and is being held captive. I did also say a minute ago, I think, that this ship and the portion where the ships and the fighters are depicted on the crotter is contained within a ring that encircles the vessel. One ship is on each side of the vessel, right underneath the central prothesis depictions. And then in between each ship, around the other sides of the ring, is a line of warriors who wear helmets and bear spears and shields. All in all, the depiction indicates armed conflict, where many ships may have transported warriors, may have been the scene of a small-scale armed conflict at the least, and they then found their way into a commemoration of a warrior who met his fate in the conflict. The style and apparent setup of these ships isn't anything groundbreaking. We certainly can't view them as triremes or even biremes. They seem more akin to the oared galleys of the Mycenaeans long before, but in a way, this type of ship in the 8th century BCE would align quite well with Homer's description of ships in the Iliad and Odyssey, and it would show that wholesale change hadn't quite yet altered the Greek world, that this was still a period of transition and expansion. Ships were a common depiction of early Greek art, as we would well suspect for a culture with close ties to maritime matters. There are many other examples of Attic vases or other vessels that bear depictions of ships, some more crude than those that we just looked at, others of a similar artistic skill and end result. For example, a similar ship battle is depicted on a Skyfoss a wine cup from Attica, and now kept in the Archaeological Museum at Eleusis, which is a region of Attica near Athens. This ship also has a bird perched on the stern. Birds frequently appear in conjunction with ships on geometric period Attic pottery. This particular ship is remarkably similar to those in the main vase that we described earlier, too. A ram on the prow, a single steering oar, vertical slats running up from a thin hull, and a deck upon which stands an archer with an arrow strung in a taut bow. All in all, the three main ship depictions that we've seen, including the one from the island of Pithecusa, all three depict remarkably similar boat styles from a period of roughly 75 years, maybe the entire 8th century BCE but regardless, a time when Greek colonists were beginning to flow west in numbers. These narrow-hulled galley-style ships seem to have been the main ship used by the Greek colonists then, similar to the galleys of the Mycenaeans from long before, but a small step closer to the biremes and triremes that would eventually supplant the galley-style. 
All of the terminology here is a slight bit confusing, I fear, and I try to keep it understandable, but let me know if I'm leaving it too confusing. Archaeology professor Sean McGrail refers to these depictions as monoremes, as opposed to galleys. The monoreme term lends itself to distinction when biremes and triremes come into play, all of these being ships with one, two, or three decks of rowers. Galley is a term generally applied to warships only, so the monoreme label could be used to distinguish between merchant ships and warships. But for me, I try to keep the terminology as simple as possible, so as to not needlessly confuse. Anyway, the term debate comes into play with one final depiction from a bowl found at Thebes, and dated to around 735 BCE. This bowl has been hard done by weathering, so the ship depiction is a bit rough, but enough remains to stoke controversy among archaeologists, historians, and ethnographers. Hardly surprising, I know. The hull of the ship is like those of other geometric period attic vessels, shallow and thin, with a ram on the prow and curving stem and stern portions. This depiction differs by showing two steering oars, so it's possible that in the previous depictions we've looked at, the perspective showed one outline to signify a side-view perspective that would only reveal one outline, even though both oars actually sat on either side of the hull. That is not the only difference between these, though. This depiction on the Thebes Bowl also shows two clear rows, or tiers, of oarsmen, one on bottom and one on top, with a central figure on the stern deck, seeming to direct them in their exertions. The controversy is readily apparent here, then. Does this depiction represent a ship like those we've already seen, a galley or monoreme with only one deck, that contains two rows of oarsmen? It could if we assume that the perspective is distorted, a departure from the typical side-view profile that the other depictions from today's episode seem to indicate. However, other historians and archaeologists have argued that this Thebes Bowl is indeed one of the oldest depictions of a bireme, that the artist did indeed intend to depict a ship with two decks of oarsmen. Now, to my untrained eye, it does appear that this is probably a strange depiction of a mono-ream single-decked ship, and here's why. The rowers on the bottom tier in the depiction have their oars in the water, quite clearly, while the rowers in the top tier do not. If the artist intended to show a ship with two decks, where the rowers were atop one another, with two rows on two decks, making four rows altogether, two on a side, if this is what he intended to show, then why would he show one tier with oars in the water, and then the top tier on the same side with no oars in the water? I think that the stronger argument here is that the top tier's oars are seemingly dry because they were actually on the ship's opposite side, in a different row on the same deck, 
which would mean that their oars would be hidden from view if we were looking from one side of the ship onto the profile. As I said, in the near future, we will shift to look at the rise of biremes and triremes in the Mediterranean world. They were certainly not contained only to the Greek maritime sphere, even though that's where the modern mind tends to lump them. The Phoenicians also used these ships, and later cultures adopted them in kind. I'm starting to run out of steam here today to honestly confess to you, and I think this is a good place to wrap it up anyways. We've seen the Greeks push west to Ischia, which is pretty far west for them in their early days. They gradually filled in the stretches back to Greece, and the societal situations stabilized in Greece proper. As this situation did stabilize, their goal shifted from mere expansion and colonization to a new focus on the control of merchant trade in the Mediterranean. We saw a similar progression play out for the Phoenicians as well, but since they were out and about well before the Greeks were, they didn't have much competition for trade routes and resources in the Mediterranean world. As the calendar begins to shift into the 7th and 6th centuries BCE, we will spend our next few episodes looking at the competition between the Greeks and the Phoenicians for trade and commercial power in the central Mediterranean. The island of Sicily and the Tyrrhenian Sea trade network are a perfect picture of how everything developed, so one upcoming episode will be devoted to this story, which includes the Etruscans and other peoples who had a role to play in the developing maritime world. The central Mediterranean wasn't the only front. The Greeks also pushed east, something that the Phoenicians never really saw fit to do. So we will spend another upcoming episode looking at Greek expansion into the Black Sea. This brings the Greek mythology of the region into play, not to mention the Greek mythology that applies to the Mediterranean world in comparison to the Phoenician mythology at the same time. Then throw in triremes, biremes, battles, and increasingly accessible historical accounts, the well will certainly not run dry for quite some time. I haven't entirely worked out how the episodes will tackle these topics in turn, but do stay tuned for developments there. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We started off a bit more abstract and lighthearted with Hesiod, the farmer poet's sailing and life advice corner but we entered a bit more academically in looking at ship depictions from the same time. All worthwhile, though, I think. That does it for the content today. Stick around a few extra minutes for the housekeeping items, if you're interested at all, though. First things first there. I said at the top that I would share a podcast where you could get a deeper look at the many, many topics related to Greek history, that we won't get to cover here on our maritime-focused talks. The best and newest place to find those topics right now is a new podcast that is overflowing to the brim of the figurative cup, the Skyfoss, if you will. The History of Ancient Greece podcast is put together by Ryan Stitt, who takes an approach with which I can relate closely. 
His podcast has source lists, outlines, copious documentation, and references to further study. So you know right off the bat that the information will be accurate and more in-depth than the more shallow discussions of Greece that some podcasts undertake. The detail to the podcast is only one among many positives, though. Ryan also excels at organizing the info in a way that's helpful for the listener, whether you know nothing about Greece or are intimately familiar with its history. There's likely to be something new for everyone, which is an important trait that I look for in finding new podcasts to invest my time in. Ryan melds the confusing alliances, development, and history of early Greece into a narrative that's understandable, which is a feat all its own in my book. So far, the podcast has reached about 500 BCE, and his approach is pretty similar to ours here too, actually, looking chronologically as much as possible, but then shifting regions and topics to cover concurrent periods in different regions to help give a complete picture. I highly recommend this podcast as a great companion to our talks here, but just to give you better context and to increase your knowledge of and appreciation for Greek history in the whole. As usual, I'll post links on the show notes for this episode, so be sure to check out Ryan Stitt's History of Ancient Greece podcast. Next on the agenda here is to announce that we did indeed have a winner of our book giveaway from episode 24. I just neglected to recognize him last time around, and I'm sorry for that. Thank you to everyone who entered, who left reviews, and I apologize for overlooking that announcement last time. Our winner of the Navigational Instruments giveaway was none other than Gary Greenhall, a longtime supporter of the podcast. First off, thanks for the support, Gary. I hope that you've enjoyed the book as well. I do have another book giveaway slated in the near future, so go ahead and stay tuned for that news if you're interested in entering. On a similar topic here as well, I'm trying to steer our ship of podcast back into the ocean currents right now, too. We've lost speed a little bit lately. The currents would help, I'm sure and I do hate leaving such a big gap in between episodes. The adjustment period at my new job, which is one of the main culprits for this problem, well, the adjustment seems to be falling into place and slowing down a little bit. So with some of our upcoming episodes all in the same relative vein of focus topically, I'm aiming to get them out more quickly than our last few have done. They may be slightly shorter, but I won't skimp on the content, to be sure. Finally today, I owe just more and more gratitude to all of you amazing listeners who continue to support the podcast through monetary membership support, or even just reviews of the podcast or telling your friends about it. I'll start by recognizing our most recent crew members, either through Patreon or through the website Membership. In no particular order, and with equal thanks dispersed to all of you here, thank you to George, Justin, Robert, Sandy, Francis, Bruce, Rosa, and Trevor. I feel like I say this every time, 
but each time that someone feels that the podcast is worth enough to go out of their way to support it like this, it just floors me, and I'm so appreciative. I'm in the middle of putting together another member episode to get out to those of you who are members. I hope that our last one, looking at Wynn Stanley's Lighthouse and some of the unique stories there, was well received. Thanks again, everyone, but thank you also to those of you who've left iTunes reviews or just shared the podcast with a friend, even. New reviews were left by users KG Studio, Kevin IC Designer, and Incredulous Bixby. Again, I'm a record stuck in the groove here a little bit, but the iTunes reviews are also immensely helpful to our publicity. But they're also quite encouraging and humbling to me as a creator. So thanks for your time and words in leaving those reviews. With that, I think that the housekeeping is now at a close as well. Hopefully things will stay arranged for a few days here at least. Thanks for sticking around to hear me blather, and thanks for your support in listening to the podcast. As I finish up recording this episode, I sit here with a stack of books on Greek history next to me. And once this episode is edited and posted, I'll turn to my notes and form those into our next episode. So follow us on Facebook or Twitter for updates on progress there. Which reminds me, I was wondering if any of you would be interested in research updates or random tidbits as my work progresses on new episodes. Social media does come in near the bottom of my priority list at many times, but I can definitely make an effort to keep you all in the loop with some behind-the-scenes updates and things like that if any of you are interested at all, either Facebook or Twitter. I get on Instagram when I can, or I could even try to send emails now and then. Uh, we have a email newsletter sign-up that you can sign up for on the website. Anyway, your voice will sway the outcome there whether I try to focus on those types of updates more or not, so do get in touch if you have strong feelings in either way. Until next time then, fair winds and following seas. Thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. If you like what you've heard, please visit the website for more info, helpful maps and images, plus membership options. Also, please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Reviews are the lifeblood of podcasts and help keep us near the top of the charts where other people are a little bit more likely to find us and catch the maritime history bug. Oh, and if your plans for today include shopping on Amazon, take 10, 15 extra seconds to visit the podcast website, scroll to the bottom of any page, and click on the Amazon orange banner. Then just shop like normal and support the podcast by doing so. Nothing changes for you, but we get a small percentage of every purchase you make. It's a simple, free way to support maritime history in podcast form. Thank you so much, everyone. It makes a huge difference to independent podcast producers like me. I hope you'll join me next time and every time thereafter as we progress through the stories of maritime history here on the Maritime History Podcast.